Hey everybody. So we just got done recording with JJ Ricasa. Um, I've taken a couple classes from the guy and I just happened to reach out to him. And uh, this is coming off the back of his interview with Brian Conley from Hunter's HD Gold's podcast. Before you go into this podcast, I recommend that you go and listen to that one. It's an hour long, but Brian Conley does a superb job of getting into JJ's background as an immigrant coming from the Philippines, getting started in the Department of Homeland Security as a federal agent, and getting to where he is today. So we reference it a lot during this podcast, and I think it would be it would give a lot of context if you all were to go and listen to that, which is a great listen, by the way. I'll listen to that before hopping on this podcast. Matt? Yeah, so a lot of what you're going to hear, it's not just shooting related. Um, you know, People ask him that kind of stuff all the time. We're, we wanted to kind of take a step back and learn about the human aspect, the human being behind the gun, um, what makes him move, what makes him tick, and what just drives him to perform at the level he does. Um, I think when people can recognize the, the humanistic approach, they can really take an appreciation and kind of set priorities for themselves. Uh, so that's the approach we wanted to take here. Yeah, and it's important because JJ has been performing at a high level for his entire life, really. He started shooting competition when he was six years old. So um, he talks about like mental lapses, not being enthusiastic, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think he gives very thoughtful and um, a lot of wealth of experience comes through his answers. And I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this podcast and uh, just let us know what you think. Hey, have a good one. Give me a nod when you're ready. Shooter's ready. Stand by. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of 3GIQ. Our guest today is JJ Ricasa. JJ was born in the Philippines and started shooting at six years old, currently a professional shooter for Beretta and reigning USPSA Carry Optics National Champion. JJ worked for the Department of Homeland Security as a federal agent and is widely sought after for his instructor credentials and charismatic persona. I've taken a couple of classes from JJ. He's largely instrumental for my development as a, uh, as a USPSA shooter and a practical shooter overall. Um, first question I'd like to start with, uh, JJ, and thanks for coming on, by the way. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Um, going through your phase approach to training. So phase one is more or less development of fundamentals. You have three pillars, right? Marksmanship, um, movement, and then, um, was, was speed the last one or? Yeah. Okay. Um, phase two is where you basically take those pillars and you explore and you find your hundred percent and a little bit of failures involved. And phase three is where you make sure that you can perform those things on demand. Uh, there's something that you said in the first class I took from you. Uh, sometimes you introduce a element of like consequence to phase three. You said yes. that 
you like if you don't perform at a certain level, you wouldn't be able to eat pork for a week. Or you'd say early on that like if you weren't transitioning fast enough, that your dad would be there to literally stab you with a needle if you didn't even transition fast enough. Um, is that still present in the way that you practice today? And how important is the concept of like losing something tangible or having a consequence to your training? Um, having a uh, some, 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 something tangible that you lose on training creates some sort of pressure that you can recreate that you don't nor normally have in, in your normal practice. What I'm trying to do now is not only work on my physical heart set skills, but I'm also working on my mental skills because I realized that throughout the years of me competing, it's really not at a certain point in your career, it's almost not to the point of it's your skill set. It's really your mindset and mental um, state that falls apart. So I start to create that and try to recreate that. And the only way I've ever really successfully recreated and adding some sort of pressure that the, the knots, the knots on your um, stomach is by creating some sort of yes, these are the prices you pay if you don't do this right now. So I'll create certain expectations, level of expectations, because that's what it is, right? When you go to competition, you have this le certain level of expectation, whether it's coming from you, your training uh, team, or the, the, the people you shoot for. And and now that I shoot for a company and my dad and everyone's whatever, everyone has a certain level of expectations. Like, hey, you won this or nationals, you got to try to win it again next year or, or can't place worse than third or anything like that, even though it's a new game whatsoever. And then so I create that level of expectation of me and practice and I create it on each and every single string that I run once I'm in phase three. However, when I'm in through development, my de developmental phase, phase one and phase two, I'm constantly looking for uh, how and how far and how quickly, how much I can push my current physical hard skill sets. It's when I go to phase three that I lock those in. And when I feel like I got it where I need it to be, where I'm tuned in correctly, where I feel like this is a good match phase, this is where I feel like I'm still on the edge, but yet not quite on it, where a small little mistake will push me fall uh, over the edge. I'm uh, enough of a buffer to, to create that buffer, right? To go up or down on it and stay consistent. That's when I start creating these little penalties for myself. I say, hey, if you don't do this, if you don't shoot 95% of your points on this particular drill, then you're, you're I'm going to take away your rice this week. I won't eat rice for a week. I'm like, ah. And in my head, I'm like, that really sucks because I love rice, right? Asian and all that stuff. <laughs> um, I used to tell you, I take my cell phone away, but then I was like, I realized that was such a big break and good break for me and I, I enjoyed it. So I was like, no food, I'm such a foodie. Or take away um, protein shakes. Like if you take that away from me, since I don't get to eat meals often, that, those are like replacements for me. I start to suffer greatly in regards to like just my overall stable uh, emotional self at home. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. So you're, um, yeah, the, the core of you is rice, pork, and uh, protein shakes. 100%. Yes. You take away steak. That's another thing. Rice is another thing. Oh, all those. Makes sense. Um, in phase three, would you say that you were your toughest critic? You've talked about how your dad coaches you through a lot of stuff, but are you your toughest critic? Me or my dad? Uh, I, I, either or. Like, did so, that change throughout your career? So yes, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like a evolution, right? Like a circle, right? It's um, it starts off with it started off as my dad being really harsh and expected a lot of me in the beginning, and a lot of that comes to the story behind. And, and there's a little backstory to that, and maybe we can get into it a little bit later. But in the beginning, when I was younger, he expected a lot. He would train me so hard, and he wanted me to get it right away. And there was a lot of pressure on 
learning things quick because at such a young age, I knew the the price to pay was not really good. Once my dad, my dad got angry or anything like that, if I didn't learn what he was trying to do, or if I didn't execute how he wanted me to execute. And then somewhere in between there, now let's say mid twenties to mid thirties, around ten years span, I was harder on myself than uh than he was on me. He kind of took a step back because like, hey, you're doing really well. Just maintain, and he kept accepting a lot of things. And as of late, again, it's kind of like I've taken it easy on myself. I think maybe I've gotten myself soft, uh, softer in regards to my approach. And go, oh, I've, I've done fairly well recently, and and I start taking step back a little bit. My dad had like had to kind of almost essentially create a balance in there and step in and take that role again and going, hey, I don't accept that. That's not good enough. We should look into it. I don't think, I, I, even though I know you don't agree with it, we need to look into it and we need to train that because that's a weakness. And sometimes when he says that, initial response is like, what are you talking about? Like, why is that a weakness? Like, don't tell me I have a weakness when I feel like I'm coming together right now. And then, you know, obviously give me some time, an hour later, two hours later, maybe a day later, I start to realize, I'm like, man, He's right. That is a weakness. That's something that I struggle on. All right. And then I get into my own head and start writing down notes. Like, all right, why is this a weakness? How do we approach it? And sometimes I don't know how, but I know why is a weakness. And I just figure out like, all right, this is the directions I'm going to go. I'm going to try to approach it here and I'm going to instill it in my training. I'll do more of this to make sure that doesn't that doesn't happen in the next match. And, and it's always right. Like everything's performance based for us. So our training and, 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 and trial and error is in training and practice in competition is when we basically put ourselves to the test and see if our training was correct and implemented correctly. So my dad's been there, man. It's awesome to have him that constantly push me in check. Cause I don't know if I'd be where I'm at. Um, if I didn't have him. So same with my wife too. My wife, my wife has one mode. She expects a lot of me every single time. She's like, sometimes I get nervous for a class. I'm like, Hey, I'm not sure if I can do this right. This class is this, this is going to be a tough class. Uh, I'm really nervous. I'm, I'm concerned about this. This is a four day class with these, high end um elite military guys and she's like hey trust you you're, you're gonna crush it and i'm like ah give me a little bit of buffer there like hey maybe you'll be all right maybe you won't and she's like no you're gonna crush it and then at the end of the week i'm like whoa we made it she's like i told you i'm like gosh dang like you don't give me a choice like give me an out sometimes give me another road to take but she's like no take this one so both of them man it's, it's awesome to, like i said it's awesome to have a, a team like that and have people behind you to either constantly call you out on your bs or just simply steer you in the right direction when you've gotten soft in yourself. So it's clear that based on your social media, that fitness is an important aspect of your life. Um, how much of your workout routine is enhancement, like setting PRs, building strength and speed versus maintenance, you know, stretching, recovery, uh, active recovery type uh, exercises. And how has that changed throughout your shooting career? Um, that's a great question. Um, early on in my career, like I would say, not early on, but I would say when I started really getting into hard workouts and stuff like that, um, 2008, 2006, I started really hitting it really hard then. And I noticed the initial difference of the stability of my gun when I come into position, the ability to stop all this extra movement that didn't seem so noticeable, but I saw it on videos. Now, that was like the, start, the time when I started really studying some videos of my movement. And then... And then, so I started, got into it really hard where I started really exploring things like CrossFit and Olympic lifts and core and yoga and all these, you know, um, hit workouts. And I tried to do everything that I needed to do, fix, figure out, strengthening and all this stuff, right? And in the beginning there, a lot of it was hitting PRs, hitting your numbers, hitting like the mile at under five minutes or, or 
hitting a three mile in around 20 minutes or something like that, whatever it may be, right? Like those are some of my PRs, my lifts and um, power lifts and all that stuff. Like those are numbers. I was chasing numbers at the end, uh, in the beginning. Sometime as of late, I would say within the last four years, I haven't quite chased numbers as much, but I do test them and see if I can hit them still. Uh, so I'm not pushing my PRs anymore. I'm, I'm also 42 years old, so I don't do that. Like the other day or three months ago, I went and see if I could – I could hit the 315 back squat and see if I can, you know, go down as deep as I could. And um, and I was able to hit that. So I was very happy to do that. But normally I'm operating within the 85, I would say 50 to 75 or 50 to 85% range. And I'm essentially doing a lot more recovery and maintenance now, like um, stretching, uh, more active recoveries. I'm doing a lot more low impact stuff like on the bike and the Peloton was a new thing or the bike at least was a new thing. Cause that gave me an opportunity to see my, my points and score. And if you give me points and score, or at least a ranking in a bike or anything that I do that end up, that ends up eating me up and figuring out how to make that better. And so those are things that I'm kindly chasing right now, but everything else in regards to my workout has been a lot about maintenance. However, there's still, I would say if you give, if I would give you a percentage early on in my career, 80% was all about chasing numbers. It was all about getting higher number, higher bench press and all that stuff. Once I got to like the 300s, I was happy with that, right? And then recently, now it's more 80% maintenance and recovery. And about 20% of those, I'll go really hard. Whether it's a Metcon that I'm chasing or or if, if it's a, a numbers game, I'll do. So I'll build up to it like a hat squat program. I'll get into that um, every three or four months. And that's a lot of reps of just straight up legs, legs, legs every day every other day, if anything. So I kind of have an additional question to add to this because you spoke about numbers and, and uh, it made me think back to whenever I was younger, um, you know, back when I was in my early twenties, I was much of the same. I was chasing those numbers, you know, a mile, my best mile was 425, three mile Whoa. was 1630. Like oh. I, that, that's all I live for. I, I ran twice a day. I swam and I lifted and it wasn't as much of a functional fitness workout as it was just like, hey, I have a goal. I want to achieve this. You know, I wanted to get down to a 15 minute three mile like that was a legit goal at one point. I'm older now. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do you how do you look back at what you've done in terms of back then you were chasing numbers? And, you know, to me, I look at back what I used to do and I'm like man, I'm never going to see those times again. And you don't want to get down on yourself, but you're like, what have I become? Um, how, how do you get through those stumps in recognizing that? It, it's it's really cool that you say that, right? And um, and there's two two things. I look at it as this way. Um, I looked at it as that was my phase two mm-hmm. in regards to my programming. If I had to, to talk about it in regards to my shooting, I was finding out what my 100% was, right? Mm-hmm. But those hundred percent in regards to those numbers and being able to having the ability to run that fast and all this stuff, we had like a mile and a half quarterly things yep. that we had to do. And mine, my goal was always to go under nine minutes in a mile and a half, right? And that was always the goal. And I was dying by then, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, with all that said, like I remember thinking back then that was my new hundred percent. So now wherever I'm at, because I've reached those numbers, it's not. I didn't fall far from it, mm-hmm. right? So I'm. I try to maintain. It's easier to maintain a higher level because we reach that level at a certain point in our career. However, I always look at it going, man, I'm never gonna touch those. Maybe I can, I still have that thought that maybe I still can chase it. It'll hurt a lot. Like, I don't know if my knees can sustain it, 
However, the the big thing that I, I start to think now is it's very purpose driven. I go, did mile running a mile under five minutes, did it really translate into making me a better shooter? And then I start thinking about it. Maybe the fit, the way I was in shape, I was um uh, maybe because I was I had more muscles in my legs and all that stuff. Maybe that might have been considered, but having that mile, maybe not so much. Like so, I was like, all right, we don't need to run that much. Maybe under six minutes is good enough for now. So running under six minutes, okay, so let me test that and see. How that translates? Is this better for for my sprinting ability? Is this better for my weight management and stuff like that? Because if I get certain heavy, uh, too heavy, my knee starts to hurt a little bit when I run long distance. My long distance is like three to five miles max, right? I don't I don't long distance at all. My wife is a runner, not me. So that's how I look at it. Is is it, does this allow for me to become a better, essentially performer out there in in the competition world? Um, so I realized that having a more stable posterior chain is much more important. So I do a lot more deadlifts now. So my deadlifts has gone up. That one, I'm not chasing quite the numbers, but I know I can do higher reps than I ever will have been before yep. because of how much intensity, not intensity, how much volume I'm doing now with it. So I'm more comfortable pulling. For a while there, I was afraid to pull um, heavyweights with that. Now I know I can pull way heavier than before um, and more reps. And I don't, I don't go for my max, but I know that that's important to me, having a stable core and all that stuff. So... A lot of it's performance based, and uh, that's that's how I keep myself motivated, essentially. Okay. No, thank you. So, I I brought up that question mostly because um, you know military is hard on your body, and a lot of our listeners, like Matt's at the end of a long career, twenty years, like, and I mean he's still getting ready for tactical games at the end of the month, so he's oh. still kicking ass. Um, but some of us, like you know, we deal We're with broken. <laughs> we're broken (laughs) physically not mentally um but yes a lot of us are dealing with those things so um i would uh, my next question is like just an insight into some of the setbacks that you might have experienced um i know in one of the classes i took with you you talked about like overuse injuries uh like a variation of tennis elbow um what are some like crucial like mental touch points during recovery like how important is positivity how important is your scheduling, those kinds of things? Man, I, I don't know if I've really been a, a good person to ask that question because I've never really been able to. I don't know. I get, I get, man, that's such a good question because, you know, I've, I've had golfers, both hands. I've had golfers um, elbow and then I had the tennis elbow to the point where uh, the doctor asked me, he's like, hey, there's two things you can do with it. You can either just let it rest and not do anything. Or two second, he goes. You're just gonna continue to work it and stretch it out. The, the, the your tendons are just gonna get, gonna um, keep up with it eventually, right? And then so I did it, and then I blew out my tendon. I pulled out some cartilage and all that stuff. To we almost had surgery on it, but anyway, I got lucky that didn't. So, so with that said, um, staying positive. Here's the thing with that. I've had some injuries where I'm like, shoot, I can't grip the gun tight. I got to do this and I got to do certain things, so, you know, stretching and all that stuff is big. Learning to uh, understand how your body works, always doing this and never strengthening out the opposing muscles. Like doing quads all the time, like your hamstring gets weak, your knee starts to suffer. Like doing abs all the time without doing your lower back or supermans, start your ab, lower back starts to hurt. People, you know, like all this stuff is all just a balance essentially. So I try to make sure I, I stay balanced and I constantly check that. But the, the weird thing about me is that like mental checks, I get really sometimes like if I come up from a loss, I get really dark. Um, my dungeon is my my cage, my gym is my dungeon, and that's where I get really dark. And I I, I end up really kill destroying myself 
so I can feel the pain. And if I can just feel that pain, I know I'm punishing myself because of how I feel, how I'm negative right now. Um, and I was there actually just a, a couple months ago where I was just in a rut and I couldn't figure myself out. I was not motivated at all to train. Um, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much pre-workout I took, it just didn't feel right. I didn't want to do it. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to continue to do it until I do it. And the, the worse I felt, the harder I tried to go to the point where sometimes I started revisiting those phases of almost blacking out or getting dizzy and training. So that's why I don't think it's healthy. But eventually I got over it, right? And then all of a sudden one day I woke up and I'm like, I can't wait to hit it today. And it, you know that when I was in that dark phase, even going to the range, training sucked. Um, didn't want to dry fire, competing uh, it, during Maryland, Virginia State. I was in that mode. I was in that dark, dark space where I didn't like. I didn't enjoy being there. It was just the people that I was there, and then I needed to show a face of one thing. But fighting, I was fighting my own battles in my head, and it it came out on my performance. I was up and down the whole time. I would get dark. And then I would get really good again in the next stage and then get real dark just before the stage. And I remember seeing that and talking to my dad about that. And my dad, my dad is so old school, man. He goes, you're just being weak mentally. He goes, you need to get stronger. <laughs> I go, I've been battling with this for the last couple of months. What do you mean weak? <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what to do there. And that's why I say I'm not, I don't think I'm the best person to do it with because I'm not always, even though it looks like I'm super positive always when I'm out, out there and whatever I show, but when I do get in that dark space, I am really dark. Like my wife will walk in the gym and she goes, oh, I know you're dealing with some stuff. Do whatever you got to do. But whenever you come, you come back in with the kids or with me, just be present. That's all we ask. We don't need you to be extra. We just need you to be present and be here for us. And I said, sounds good. And that's always our deal, right? It's like, so never take it in. And so sometimes it's hard. So that's why I take it out in the gym as much as I can. And the gym's always been my outlet. Um, sometimes fighting, like training, um, striking, Muay Thai, whatever, is also a really good outlet for me because I can either get hit. And I can, as long as I can feel pain, and the more pain I feel, the better I start to become. It's really, really weird, and I don't think that's healthy for anyone, so I don't advise it for anyone out there. But pain is my way out a lot of times. I think what I pulled out from that is, man, like, I mean, it's hard to be consistent over so many years in terms of, like, operating at a high level and all that. And then sometimes, like, you don't have the same level of enthusiasm for things, but you still have to persist. Like the foundation still needs to be there. Um, you and I, I brought this up when I ran to you at Maryland State, but um, back in September 21, uh, I suffered a partial tear of my Achilles and I went in a dark place for a while, man. Like that first weekend, I was like, Frank, you're going to be a depressed piece of shit. Like you're probably going to end up drinking all the wine in the house, like eat whatever you want, watch all the football, just sit on the couch, just feel sorry for yourself. But then the following Monday, like you need to go and you need to do your rehab and it's going to be tough. Um, and like even throughout, I'm in a much better place now, you know, like this morning I was able to take the dog on a, on a run through the trails. Um, and then afterwards I got back and I hit weights. But even then, like running up a hill, there's like, I still don't have that push off in my left foot. And there was this nagging thought, I'm like, dude, what if this is the rest of your life? Like your left ankle just never comes back all the way. And then. The other side of me is like, shut the hell up. Like, that's not productive thinking. Like, get get through it, you know? Um, so I, in a weird way, um, I don't know if I said this at Maryland State, um, I do have some things to be thankful for in terms of my injury. It For the longest time, like, it forced me to learn shooting on the move. That's the only way I could shoot stages. I basically had to, like, crawl my crippled ass around the stage and take everything on the move. Only way I could be somewhat competitive. Um, out of any of the setbacks that you've experienced, have you ever seen any of those silver linings? Dude, 
Big thing. You just said it. Um, I fractured. I had a hairline fracture on my ankle 2009, just three months before the Nationals or something like that. I was playing basketball, and I landed on someone's foot, rolled it, and I was like, ooh, that's bad. I've never felt it crunch. I've never felt pain like this where I blacked out for a split second, right? And then only to find out that I had a hairline fracture, and it was bruised up the next day and all that stuff. So I knew Nationals was coming in. It was like maybe a month or two months before. It, and Saul Kirsch has a video of me shooting at the time. There, there was no – my dad wasn't there, so he didn't take any videos. I was by myself in Vegas competing. And so when I had that leg, I remember moving around. It hurt so hard to push off, right, like a hard push in order for me to get activated and run hard. And, and I knew, but if I started running, I could do okay. But lateral movement or sudden stops, didn't like it at all. And our sport is a lot of lateral movements and stuff like that, right? Leaning in weights and stuff. So I, I was like, man, what, what do I have to do in order for this to happen? This is supposed to be a year that I'm going to try out for the team for 2011. And this is the start of it all. And I need to be good at nationals. That's like the one tryout that it's not, it's coming no matter how injured you are. So all I did was I started utilizing other things. Like you said, I started learning how to efficiently exit and enter positions. I started realizing there's other ways to um, break step and you can use utilize your other opposing foot to be able to still manage yourself to get in the right position and stuff like that and then once i did that it allowed for me to be able to explore other avenues of my movement and now i talk about it like now i don't always drop step i, I might do lead foot pivot and really that's when i started to really do what's called a lean i started doing a lot of leans and stuff like that so going to nationals then you see i had a plastic cast to wrap around my foot I had this oversized shoe that I had to fit in in order for me to compete. And I was actually, 2009, I still, it's still very fresh in my head because I was winning the Nationals. Luckily, winning the Nationals somehow found myself in the league going to the last stage, about 40 or 50 points. However, I had a catastrophic jam um, at the last stage that I didn't expect and ended up third by three or four points off the winner and then I ended up giving it to Max. Like everyone was new. That was mine. Everyone was congratulating me. And then sure enough, um, something happened. It wasn't, it wasn't my time yet, I guess, whatever it may be, whatever the reason was, I wasn't blessed to win the nationals. And so, yeah, I, I got hurt, but I remember thinking back, like even with a broken ankle, I was able to perform with this, not because I was running or stopping hard, but I, I was able to find different routes, different ways, different technique. And I know this will eventually serve me better later on in my career. And it, it surely has paid me tenfold. Yeah. But good to hear that, man. Um, kind of want to change subjects a bit. So I listened to your interview with Brian Connolly for the Unders HD podcast. I thought that was a, like, I, I wasn't really interested in rehashing like your backstory for this podcast. Cause I think he just did such a great job. Um, but you talked about immigrating to the United States. Um, I myself from an immigrant family. And one of the things that I realized growing up is like, I was the oldest of three kids, right? I kind of had to grow up a little faster because pretty quickly I was the most fluent English speaker in the house. I'd help my parents figure things out. I had to be example for my brothers, kind of like how you had to be for your uh, your sisters growing up. Um, so a lot of the way, like you guys, you 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 and your parents like sacrifice, come to the country. Uh, you learn things through hardship and persistence. What are some of the difficulties you have in like now that you're a father, translating those into your own kids? The biggest difficulty right now for me is that I want to spoil them, right? I'm, I'm in a position where I can, we can spoil them a little bit. We've worked hard and I don't want them to go through what I went through. And then I, it's always a constant battle between 
me, my own head, and my wife and I talk about it a lot. It's like, am I, are we spoiling them and are we creating such a soft life for them that are we setting them up for failure? Um, how, do we, how do we instill to them the, the, the characteristics that, I, that, that we built up through a kid as, as we went through hardship and we appreciate what we have as opposed to them right now? It seems like everything just kind of comes into the way. So that's kind of one of the big hardships that, that we are constantly battling with right now. The kids, man, it's crazy because the kids wake up in his brand new house, they get they get air conditioning, get nice Tempur-Pedic beds. Um, where I had, I slept on floors. Um, there there was an always hot water, like there was cold. You know what I mean? Like these things. But I don't want them to go through that. So we do, do we do we give them whatever we can give because I don't want them to ever go through what I went through. However, at the same time, it's like the balance of are we spoiling them? Are we creating too soft of a life for them? You know, but at the same time, I don't want them to go through becoming hard. So really, there's a lot of talk between us. Like, hey, I want you guys to understand we can do these things because of these. And the reason why dad or mom works really hard is so we can provide for you guys. I want you guys to understand that you have to work for whatever you get. So anything that they get, most of the time, not a lot of times, not, not all the time, most of the time, they have to kind of work for it in order for them to get it. So they kind of understand the value of work. If I can, if I can raise them to be respectful kind and just hard work like that's all i want so the way i try to instill that right now is show them that i'm working hard i'm training my butt off in the gym and they come in and visit and now i can see that starting to translate because they'll bust their butt and just join me out of nowhere my son the other day just last two nights ago did like 500 or 600 jump ropes just before bed just because he saw me do a bunch of jump rope that morning and he just picked it up and it's like dad how do you do this and he kept doing it until he got good with it and he just started doing it he's like dad i'm up to 500 i'm like i'm like well you're done and he's like maybe i can do 100 more i'm like sounds good and then so i ordered him jump rope you know what i mean like these things so i'm hoping that that will just hopefully i don't know right if we're doing it right or wrong we got one thing to do it right one or wrong right one chance to do it right or wrong and we'll i'll find out in a few years if we're doing it right or wrong i just want to be there for them as much as I can and, and, and guide them really. But as an immigrant, that's something I'm very proud of and, and how we were able to live life, how my parents sacrificed that. I talk to them about that and, and, and give them a little bit of history, a little bit. My wife does, does it as much as, um, more than I do. I don't like to talk about it much because sometimes it's kind of a dark space. My wife likes to be the one to talk to them about that and, and let them understand like, hey, this is where dad came from. This is how he got here. And this is the problems he went and faced through and stuff like that. So it's pretty, I don't know. So, you know, that's that's how I do it. I don't know if that's the right way or wrong way. We'll find out in a few years, I guess. Yeah, I think you guys are on the right track. Um, I just remember like things that my parents would tell me growing up, like I ran cross country, right? So like my shoes would wear out every few months and they'd be Ugh. like, when our shoes wore out, we just patched them up and kept going. It's like, yeah, but you guys weren't running as much as I was. But it's just, it's just some of those things, the things that you take for granted growing up in the States. It's hard to convey those things without seeming like you're just being capricious, for lack of a better word. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't really appreciative of some of my parents' sacrifices until much later. And uh, now I constantly, it's a measuring stick for myself. Like, would I be able to pick up and start a life in a new country like my mom and dad did? And, you know, I, I try to think about that at least once a week. That's a that's a good thought um, to have. I had a little preview of what my mom went through, my my dad went through um, when we went to Vegas, and my wife and I were separated for a little bit because she had to continue to work with Secret Service while I started a business with the two kids, the one year old and the three year old in Vegas. And that was really really hard. Um, 
And we only did that for like a year and a half, two years. When my mom did it for 10 full years of being in a different country, starting a different life and establishing a life here so we can all kind of come here. So I, 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 the two hardest persons I know in my life is really, you know, my wife and my mom, like two females just crushing it out there. It's, it's impressive to see how strong they are to be able to do that. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I got, I got to agree. Uh, on my side, like for me, my wife being probably one of the strongest people, it's like four or five months after my daughter was born, I was getting deployed. Exactly. Came, oh. came back a year later, you know, came or came back after like six months, a year later, back on another deployment. And then five months after I came back from that one, I'm gone for 13 months. And then I come oh. to the team thinking, Oh, you know, it's going to be a bit of a break. Oh, no, <laughs> you know, on the road all the time. And, you know, I really got to give a lot of props to her because she was so strong. You know, we've been married, you know, this December will be 17 years. Yeah. So, so it's like, and she's, she's only known me go, going on deployments, come back, deploy, going, uh, coming back. You know, our daughter's eight years old. And so, you know, I try and be that positive uh, father figure to, to my daughter, but she totally goes to my wife because that, that's who she's known. And, you know, I understand that role. So now it's like, Hey, time to make a, you know, make up that time. Cool. Um, and I mean, I'll be able to do that pretty soon here in about a month. Well, realistically <laughs> that's so, a week. <laughs> that's so awesome because there's going to be an adjustment, right? Like you live your own life when you're traveling, like both mm -hmm. of you guys live your own lives. Like you have your own routine, like, Every yep. time I come home from a trip or long trip, and you know this better than I do, you mess up the routine. The whole house gets all oh, yeah. the bomb just blows up. And the wife's like, you're not helping at all. You're messing up the whole thing. Right? There's so much more. And I'm like, there's two of us now. We should be able to help out each other. But it's all messed up for a little uh -huh. bit. My oh, wife's yeah. always like, you're screwing things up. Yep. And then, you know, you get in a dynamic and you get into a flow. And there's an adjustment period for all of it, right? So, yeah, you got to learn to live with, together, with each other. And then yep. still continue to live the life that you lived before that too. <laughs> and, and it's like my daughter, she'll like ask my my wife for something. My wife will be like, no. And then she'll come to me. Hey, daddy, can I have Hell this? yes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'll win you over. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> but no, I love your approach. Like, you know, I, I look at, you know, raising your kids. Are we doing it the right way? Are we spoiling them? Are we holding back when we need to? And are we teaching them the right lessons and what can they learn from those lessons? So that was beautifully said. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so switching real quick, another, you know, the Brian Conley interview was like really good. And I really uh, liked uh, your response and what you had to say. But one of the antidotes that really stood out to me, on his podcast was whenever you were going through your air marshal training and you fired three headshots and then you fired three more headshots saying he wasn't down. So, <laughs> and, and they got pissed off at you. Um, and they didn't believe that you were being able, that you were able to process the marksmanship in the environment at that pace. Would you characterize that most institutions approach to marksmanship is focused more on phase one style of training uh, the marksmanship side and not necessarily the speed. And what do you think can be done to push individuals in the military federal agencies uh, to pursue and understand a higher level of marksmanship? Man, that's such a deep question. Yeah, that, Brian really did a number on that podcast. I was 
I was in a, like I said, I was still in, I was in that dark space, right? Mm-hmm. May to like June. And, and when he started pulling out these things, the storytelling of just me and I, even me, when I was telling the stories, I'm like, hold up a second. Is this SSI? I don't know if I can continue. <laughs> so I would have to like make up stuff as I went. I'm like, no, I, I got to go away from that story and stuff like that. But anyway, um, the, the Brian did a good job with that one. So that's why it's funny. Like I was telling stories and I, and I would watch it. And I'm like, oh my God, I almost said so much. And I'm like, good. I held back enough. But anyway, um, one of the things that I think we get a lot from being pushed to perform at such a pace, speed, and and learn to call audibles on the fly in, in competition is the ability to process things at a much higher level. Not only on the adjustment on your shooting, but the ability to understand the environment that's going on around you, whether it's the next position, the next door, the next activator, the timing's all screwed up. And sometimes we are spinning up our mind fast enough to put because now I got to do an extra reload because I've had an extra shot and we're trying to process these things. right? So we're constantly exposed to these higher processes. And so when I was thrown and every time I've ever been thrown in any kind of tactics training, MT training or, uh, or movement training uh, in regards to guns and stuff like that, shooting was never really the main priority for me. It was just more about reacting to the scenario. So I was able to focus more on scenario and think what I had to do, think about my partner, think about the crossfire, the position that I'm in and all that stuff. So those were much easier for me to pick up because the shooting was so locked on. So with that said, having the ability to process is a huge, huge advantage. And I think a lot of the ability to process is because we're starting to think less about our shooting and we're we're thinking about the scenario itself. And now we're present with what's currently going on as opposed to like reacting. We're constantly... In just in front and just ahead of what's going on. So um, I think in, in regards to the academy, I worked in an academy and a lot of things that they did was literally work on, it was like two of the three phases in training. It was just straight up the accuracy in a marksmanship and movement. Not so much speed was ever involved. And the only time you ever saw speed is when we were in scenario based with, with, with role players or some sort of tactics game. And when speed got involved, because that was essentially their first time doing it, things fell apart. Marksmanship fell apart. They were shooting each other, shooting bad rounds, multiple rounds, and not seeing their sight picture, not even able to recall half the things that they did in regards to what the partner did, how they communicated their talk, and then add a little bit of stress in there, and things really got out the window. So one of the things that we started to do in the academy was I kept saying, like, hey, we need more speed-induced training. We need more speed-induced training. We can't just do this step one, two, three, and four draw, we need to be able to just go as fast as you can. And one of the influences for me with that was this guy named, this guy named Kelly Benden from, um, and he was former Delta. He was, um, his, his, um, I think his company's called Criterion Tactical. I don't know if he still runs it, He's, uh, maybe, or maybe he fully retired, but Kelly Benden uh, created this thing called Triple Nickel. And Triple Nickel was his idea was to be able to push them outside of the, the rigor mortars of the deliberate movement and stage-to-stage breakdown. We wanted them to push through the speed and all that stuff. And so I said, hey, that works for a lot of folks and instructors. The, dif- the difference between an instructor working to achieve the triple nickel time, which is five targets, 10 rounds, two shots per target at five yards, you have to do a reload in between in five seconds, right? Um, anywhere in between the first target and the last target, you have to reload in between. So there's a lot of things going on from either concealment at the time and then now through whatever carry duty um, gear you have. And watching the instructors evolve, chasing this speed and the ability to go faster and faster and faster, I saw guys literally 
not only in their on their qualification score go skyrocketing up, but the ability to demo at a slower speed, which was their fast speed before, because they pushed one aspect in their game of shooting, which is speed. And once they were able to process whatever was going on at running 10 rounds with a reload in five seconds, it translated to what they did. Even though they weren't really good shots, it translated to what they did when in the marksmanship or accuracy part because their processing was so much faster. And it also translated to their demo speed, even though to them, we'd had to tell them like, hey, slow down a little bit more because things are going still too fast. Like, no, we've slowed down enough. All right, we'll slow down even more. We kept telling guys to slow down because things were happening so much faster than them. And now and you just saw it in that regard. So what I started to take in was one time we did a test, um, Kivel. I don't know if you guys know Mike Kivel. We started to say, hey, let's push some speed. Let's grab like three or four students and let's just put, push pure speed on them. Let's go fast draw, two shots per target, six round rhythm drill, rhythm drills in three different targets, Alprez, seven, 10 yards, over and over and over. And let's see what their, their shooting is in PPC or the qualification score will be. And then how they go against a different group that we focus and follow the, the, the lesson plan of marksmanship, trigger, one shot and 15 yard, two shot, 25 yard and all this stuff. The group A that we had, we, we focused speed. We never even left, I think, further than 12 yards. We kept pushing in speed at this at a close distance and just kept paying attention to their marksmanship and, and all this stuff, right? But at speed, we kept bringing their group down and tighter and tighter. Some of them we were able to push harder. Some of them we had to scale back a little bit. The other group where we maintained the group B, I'd say, we maintained the marksmanship focus, accuracy, and all that stuff. We put them to, to the test against each other in just two weeks. I think we had them we had them about six, seven, eight hours total. In two weeks, we would put them against each other in, in the steel range. Group A smoked everyone by 100% in Group B. They couldn't understand the speed that these guys were operating on. They were just getting completely wiped out on the floor. Then we put them against in the in the qualification course. The qualification course is like from three yards to, to, to seven to 10 uh, to 15 to 25 with barricades, stuff like that. These guys, that Group A, never even shot past 15 or 25 yards. We just showed them how to shoot tight shots at close range, um, learning how to manipulate the trigger correctly and all that stuff. Um, smoke, I think their average score was, let's say, 280 to 285, which is like 90% out of the 300. And the average score of the Group A, a Group B marksmanship was hovering around 260, which is about 75, um, 80%, which is unreal, the, the difference between the two. So we're like, hey, can we can we do this and start pushing it? So we pitched it up in the upper management, and upper management basically said, we can't really, well, though we like the results, we can't do it because of CYA. Like, if anything happens out there, we push for speed. We ask them to do things like three, six rounds in the body over and over and over for like a thousand rounds or whatever it may be. That's going to come back to us if anything ever happens out there in the field. So I kind of understood their part. But at the same time, I'm like, man, this is the institutionalized thing that we're talking about. We're battling this uphill battle of doing one way as opposed to it's kind of evolving a sense, right? Like right now, I don't want my first time to be real deal. My life is on the line for me to go as fast as I possibly can. I want to have already done that several times mm-hmm. in training, kind of understand that weird things happen when you're going super fast. So that's that's where it is there. And then the ability to be able to process that, going back to the store of me firing three rounds, realizing the guy didn't go down yet, firing three more rounds, um, or whatever it may, uh, rounds, it was three rounds for me, six rounds total. Um, having the ability to process was just a credit to shooting competition for years and years and the ability to process on what's going on with the shooter, the target, and everything else. 
Now that brings me back to like, so earlier in the year, I did some time with the FBI, just working with their firearms instructors, like being able to train their entry level students. And every time, every time after we got done with the string of fire and after every drill, we would bring them all together, like our, our, our bay into a group and we talked to them and it's like, you know, we would tell them, Hey, this is a standard, you know, this is a standard that you have to keep, but think past that standard and push yourselves now. That way, whenever you do get in a situation, you already know that you have that covered because you've done it multiple time and time again. And, you know, we would, we would, we wouldn't really tell stories about our time in the field or, you know, overseas or anything like that, but we would, we would just tell them, Hey, these are the repercussions for not being able to perform your job. And I That's mean, crazy. and it works, um, you know, and even though there was a specific time standard that they had to keep, we were always pushing them to go further, go faster, get more accurate while putting everything together. And I think most of them qualified with over a 90%. Wow. I was just going to say, what were the results of 90%, huh? Yeah. That's unreal. That's, that's beautiful. I, I, I also um, started to, um, sorry, give me a second. Oh, just my wife checking on me. We're good. Thank you. So we're good still. Um, um, Las Vegas Metro, one of my students um, was a former is a grandmaster, uh, got into the training department and he started talking about like, hey, what do, what do I show? What should I focus on? So I told him, focus on the way to manipulate their trigger and then show them the two different ways to manipulate the trigger, whether it's accuracy or speed based. But I want you to push speed a little bit if you can. And so he started fighting this uphill battle of pushing speed, pushing speed, pushing speed. And I wish I still have his text. My phone has this weird thing. Well, I have to say space, I guess. So it deletes after every 30 days. But mm -hmm. um, his text to me was like, dude, these are the initial results of us doing this speed thing. Guys are now passing 95%. And these are the increases from the previous score. So I came in and instilled this. And these are the differences in, in, in qualification score, passing requirement, and the ability to perform out there in the field. And then same thing in, in Houston department. Like we work with them a lot. And then a lot of these guys start talking about like the differences in the approach and training now, because now we've um, influenced. And like, I like the way you worded it. We've modernized training a little bit more and, and it, you know, kind of evolved a little bit and added some sort of speed and stress into that game. Well, JJ, I know uh, we got to get you on your way, but we appreciate you coming on and uh, your answers and giving us your time. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before we go? Man, I, no, it's just thanks for having me, man. It, it's awesome to be able to, to to talk to the guys out there that are out there putting it, putting in the work, right, and, and give, allowing us to live the life that we live here. So if you if that's if you're one of those guys out there, man, I would love for you guys to get, give it a chance. Go out there and shoot competitions. Um, I was one of the few to start the team reconnaissance sniper foundation team RSF guys. And that was really cool to be a part of that. Now they, I get a call sometimes I'm like, man, we're already in a third or fourth ripple effect. And they explained what that meant to me and how far it's come. And now they have an official, you know, gathering at shot show now every year. And those guys support the Marines and, and, and get them to go competition and sponsor them and create time and all that stuff. All of us are busy in our own regard. Make sure you prioritize, right? Family first, work, and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, figure out a way to make whatever your job is better for you. And then one of the things that you, to, in order for you to become better at your job in regards to marksmanship shooting or as a better operator overall 
competition exposes your weaknesses not not that it gets you killed in the streets or anything like that it just exposes your weaknesses it shows you the holes in your game and you go all right i'm not as good as i thought i was i need to build these foundations a little bit more solid so next time i get tested i don't crumble under pressure and that's all i really want is just for hopefully people will work harder dry fire um if not try competition shooting out because it really is a big benefit to everyone and anyone behind the gun awesome well, thanks again for your time. And to our listeners, uh, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And thanks for listening.